Welcome to Born to be Breastfed with your host, Marie Biancuso. Our program aims to help you bust through the breastfeeding myths and ensure you and your baby enjoy the breastfeeding journey. Over the next hour, we'll help you figure out how to overcome the obstacles you might encounter and how to incorporate breastfeeding into your busy life. Now, here is your host, Marie Biancuso. Hi, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuto. I'm your host for Born to be Breastfed, where every week we debunk the myths and clarify the facts about breastfeeding and beyond. And today we're really sticking with breastfeeding and human milk because my guest today is Dr. Natalie Schenker. Dr. Schenker, welcome to the show. Hi there. Great to be here. Dr. Natalie Schenker initially t- trained as a surgeon specializing in pediatrics. She qualified as a doctor and earned her Ph.D. from Imperial College, where her research focused on epigenetics and breast cancer research. Dr. Schenker is co-founder of the Human Milk Foundation, which aims to ensure more babies are fed with human milk, and she's the director of the Hearts Milk Bank, co-founded with Jillian Weaver. Through her work at the Hearts Milk Bank, she works to support a wide range of ethically funded research into the optimal use of milk banking, as well as the effects of breastfeeding on mothers and babies' health. So then, I know that you will very much enjoy hearing what Dr. Schenker has to say. She is hugely knowledgeable, but she is also, uh, I believe, really very down-to-earth and will help you to get some your head really around this whole idea of the composition of human milk. Dr. Schenker, I give a course that is a full-length 90-hour course in lactation, which most people will take as part of their IBCLC preparation. And one of the things that I see over and over, year after year, city after city, online after online courses, the people get confused about the difference between the nutrients, Mm. and uh, by that I mean the macronutrients and the micronutrients, as opposed to these protective factors. And it appears to me that a lot of your research and your focus has been the protection against human milk, uh, of human milk. Am I reading you right here? Yes. Yes. I mean, I guess it goes back to when I was training as a doctor. We had lectures on breastfeeding and and the importance of it, Um, but it was a very detached set of um, facts that we were given, and it it did primarily focus on nutrients and nutrition and goes into the hospital setting is baby getting enough calories is baby getting enough weight on yes and it was really only through the work I did alongside my PhD which wasn't really relevant to the PhD I was doing but I just became fascinated very quickly (laughs) (laughs) it's when I realized that actually you know pregnancy is only part of the developmental picture that actually milk is a developmental patterning tool and that we we do need to think of it of nutri- as nutrition, but actually it most likely evolved in the very first place in the very earliest mammals as an immune protection for very immunocompromised infants who are popping out into the world, which is full of pathogens, of bacteria, bugs that are trying to cause infection, viruses that we've been doing battle with on an evolutionary background for millennia. And milk is stuffed full of ingredients you can call them components 
that are designed to protect that baby. And not only that, but to, in some ways, program that baby for long-term mm-hmm. health through the responses that it generates. That's an excellent word for it, to program or pre-program that baby's uh, future health. And I remember many, many years ago, this must have been maybe in the mid to late 80s, I heard Dr. Margaret Hamish, who at the time was uh, doing research at Georgetown University, uh, where I also worked, and she said, when you compare human milk to formula milk, on just a nutrient basis, you know, really, she said, the differences, there certainly are differences. Human milk absolutely is superior, but it's not that much superior. Mm-hmm. The The place where human milk is absolutely incomparable is from the protection standpoint. And as you can see, that was decades ago, but uh, knowing Dr. Hamish and all of her research and her credibility, I just kind of stopped dead in my tracks and I thought, wow, so it's not just the vitamins and stuff. You know, there's there's a much, much bigger picture here. And I I love what you just said about the fact that uh, it's probably evolutionary. It's probably what keeps us going, so to speak. Well, I was, yes. I I especially like to look at this idea, uh, at least here in the U.S., and I don't know about the U.K., but in the U.S., when we have doctors who don't really understand uh, how the medication will affect the mother's milk, either in terms of safety or components or or whatever, they say, oh, well, forget it. You know, just just wean the baby and take this medication. How would you react to that? There's a a big movement in the UK at the moment, and it's being driven by mainly GPs, our our general practitioners, who are the community care doctors. Um, And it's primarily being driven by women doctors who've worked for 10, 15 years and then had babies and then suddenly fallen into this world, which is pretty different to anything you can expect or or plan for if you haven't done it before. And a lot of them, myself included, are frankly just horrified at some of the advice that we were given beforehand. So that movement's really starting off to say, if you don't know about a medication, then look it up before advising a woman to stop breastfeeding. And oftentimes, the places that you would normally look things up as a medic, they won't have the right information or they won't have up-to-date information. Or that information may not exist at all. And one of the big projects that we want to plan for in the future is looking at the metabolism of blood uh, of drugs into the breast milk because there are probably going to be relatively few drugs that absolutely contraindications so would prevent breastfeeding Um, and it may be that some of those in different situations would also be possible too it just depends on that mum and her particular metabolism Um, and so there isn't any great impetus for pharmaceutical companies to do that research (laughs) (laughs) to earn much money out of it Um, and one of the issues that we've encountered time and again is that funders don't necessarily see this as a a priority a public health priority I agree and that's absolutely what we're trying to turn on its head Um, well I I pose that question Mm -hmm. so that I can set our listeners up for hearing my next question which is in my opinion it always comes down to the risk and the benefit 
So yes. when when I hear, oh, you can't take that medication because we don't really know what it will do, I never hear the, I shouldn't say never, but I seldom hear the other side of that, which is we know these tremendous benefits of your milk. We know the benefits for the baby, for you, for society, for the economy, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And mm-hmm. one of the things that I think that we kind of downplayed here in the U.S., is the relationship between human milk and cancer. Can you enlighten us? Because I know that you've done a lot of research about the protective effect of of lactating as well as consuming human milk as related to protection against cancer. Sure. I mean, just go a step. Yes, there are these uh, benefits which have been known for many decades and so on, but uh, Professor Amy Brown, who we've done a lot of work with, oh, yes. did um, a survey, an Ipsos Mori survey, which in the UK is a, the highest uh, way of doing any polling, <laughs> as good uh-huh. as any polling uh-huh. is at the moment. But sure. she sure. interviewed 2,000 people through Ipsos Mori. And of that, over two thirds said that there was no biological difference between human milk and infant formula. Oh, oh. And that's going to be not just general oh, public but people right, making decisions right. area in this area so it could be grant funders people sitting on scientific advisory boards medics you know probably before i had my own daughter and fell into this world that would have been me too sure, um, sure, and it's sure, that idea sure. of equivalency that yes there are these supposed benefits which we know are there but the mechanism hasn't been fully explained and i think the excitement in the research community is that the mechanisms are starting to become, um, if not apparent, then certainly suggested by the work developing in the field of the microbiome uh, and all of the interactions of human milk in patterning um, the gut microbiome. And I think over the next five to 10 years, that is going to be the critical um, policy uh, angle is that politicians won't be able to ignore the science coming through. But we'll see. It's early days and and who knows which way that research is going to go. But in terms of cancer, I mean, my work didn't look directly at at breastfeeding uh, and the risk of breast cancer, but that came around in in lots of the um, data that I had to gather together to to look at the section that I was doing. And what really I was looking at is whether we could look at risk markers of cancer in the cells that are found in breast milk. And although what we did was only a very tiny pilot study, we showed a proof of concept that we probably could. Um, and, and so that would create an entire new screening tool for cancer. But what came up through the, the, re- the reading around it is that in terms of breast cancer risk, it was thought until the early 2000s that if a woman breastfeeds for around a year, then she cuts her chance of developing cancer as a relative risk by about 4%, which in actual numbers is a pretty tiny contribution. It's kind of one of those things that it doesn't really matter either way. So it was classified as a minor risk modifier. But the reason that it came out as that number is that actually we didn't really know how breast cancer uh, behaved. And actually... The year after that data came out in The Lancet, another report was published that showed that breast cancer was actually five different genetic types of disease that arise probably from different cells within the breast, different cell types. And of those, 
the most common cancers are those that express hormone receptors on the surface of the cells and those that are amenable to Herceptin therapy, so they have this special growth factor. But about 25% of women with cancer are affected by a much more aggressive type, and that's the triple negative breast cancer. Uh-huh. And it's called triple negative because it doesn't express any of these markers on the cells. So these are much more aggressive cancers. They're much more, um, they metastasize, they spread much more quickly, and they tend to affect younger women, women with genetic mutations, and also women interestingly, who are pregnant um, and develop breast cancer are more likely to have this sort of cancer. And the data on breastfeeding and affecting the risk of getting this disease is very clear and shows that if you breastfeed for around a year, then actually you cut your risk of getting this sort of cancer by 20%. Um, And that's for every, that's for ever breastfeeding. So if you keep on breastfeeding for longer over a lifetime, then you're cutting it by a really high amount uh, for every year that you breastfeed. And so uh, it sounds to me like I am well within my rights to be able to tell women, their families, and anyone else who's listening that, in fact, there is a substantial uh, lowered risk uh, from the act of breastfeeding. Hey, everybody, don't go away because when we come back, I want to ask Dr. Schenker about ovarian cancer and other issues. We've got a full show. Don't go away. We'll be right back after this short break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Was your breastfeeding experience stressful or challenging? Did you face an unusual obstacle and go on to meet your goals? If so, we'd like to hear from you, and so would other mothers. Email radio at borntobebreastfed.com to see if you can be Marie's next guest. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Do you need breastfeeding training for your hospital staff? Maybe you need to offer all 15 sessions to meet the baby-friendly requirements. Or perhaps you need just a few sessions. Check out Marie's new course, Best Practices for Breastfeeding Management. It's perfect for improving your exclusive breastfeeding rates and helping staff earn contact hours. You know Marie will focus on the clinical outcomes, not just the training process. Marie's course offers the ultimate in flexibility and convenience. It's online 24-7 so staff can study at their own pace. You can use the course for all of your staff or just your newly hired staff. And Marie offers a tracking report so you can tell who has started or finished. Best of all, staff can print out their own certificate when they finish. Don't waste another minute trying to develop your own course. Trust America's leading breastfeeding educator to provide staff training that works. Call Marie today at 703-787-9894. 703-787-9894. And ask for your bulk discount. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuto. I'm here today with Dr. Natalie Schenker. We're talking about the composition of human milk. And we ended off by talking a little bit about the reduced risk of breast cancer as related to breastfeeding. Now I'd like to move into a slightly different mode, which is, Dr. Schenker, can you talk with us, please, about the reduced risk of ovarian cancer as related to breastfeeding? Yes. So some of the um, really the studies that really piqued my interest were those that looked at breast cancer risk and ovarian cancer risk. Because if you think about what's going on in the breast during lactation, you can kind of imagine ways why uh, the process of producing milk would impact on developing cancer cells in the breast. But we also know from the literature that women who breastfeed have a reduced risk of a particular type of ovarian cancer. And that doesn't necessarily make sense from a direct effect because the ovaries are nowhere near the the actual breast. And yet there is something going on that stops um, or seems to be correlated with having a lower chance of developing ovarian cancer, epithelial ovarian cancer. Now, whether that's a cause and effect or causation or whether it's because there is something in women who go on to successfully breastfeed, that means that they would have had a lower chance of um, of developing that sort of cancer to begin with. Really needs teasing out um, and doing some some research to understand what comes first, whether it's a sure. chicken or egg situation. Uh huh. Uh huh. But nonetheless, it sounds like. Th- there is substantial research to support that, in fact, your chances of ovarian cancer are reduced by the act of breastfeeding. Yes? Well, that's what it certainly seems to, to suggest, and that's certainly what the World Cancer Research Fund has, has stated, that the, there appears to be a risk-reducing effect of lactation. And interestingly, a very a much more recent study uh, published in the last couple of years, a big meta-analysis, so that's where all of the related literature is put into a big pot and looked at statistically, uh, has shown a, a combined effect on endometrial cancer, womb cancer. Oh, as well. Mm-hmm. So whether this is all something to do with the process of pregnancy and then the hormonal state carrying on, or whether it's to do with the fact that a woman's immune system ramps up in the breast and the breast should be a a primary immune organ Um, whether there's some spillover from the maternal bloodstream in the breast into the rest of the body um, would be really interesting to look at and all of the crossover autoimmune diseases rheumatoid arthritis multiple sclerosis there's something going on and what 
what we're just trying to say to funders is that this is actually an area that should be getting a lot of funding in. Yes. Because this yes, is affecting yes. women's health for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, um, as well as the impact on the babies uh, as well. Uh, you took the words out of my mouth. I was just about to say, you've mostly focused your comments on the act of breastfeeding that the mother does. What do we know about the baby later on developing breast cancer or ovarian cancer? Not very much at all. Um, and it's hard to do those studies because you need to follow up people for a very long time. Long time. The problem with doing any sort of study in this literature, in, in this area, is that usually you have to ask people what they did 30 years ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so even if it's not, even if it's asked at all, a retrospective study where you ask people to remember what happened is just never going to give you the information you need. So there are some birth cohort studies that are um, a long way down the track. So data will start coming out. Um, and that's going to be really interesting to look at. Things like the ELSPAC study, the child study in Canada. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. All sorts of, of things going on, um, which will be powered enough to have enough people in the study to get at least some answers. Um, to and, direct and research. It, it seems to make a lot of sense that, uh, and this is, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but it just seems to me like it makes a lot of sense that there it offers so many protections that we should not be surprised to find that someday, maybe not during my career or my lifetime, but sometime, we I suspect we'll really have good information on that. Talk to us a little bit about necrotizing enterocolitis. Sure. Because one of the things that I see is that sometimes mothers of premature babies really don't Mm. understand that for their baby, breastfeeding is not nice to have. It is really need to have. It can really be the difference between life and death. Uh, Am I making an overstatement or could you explain why that would be true? No, I mean, it's been many years since I worked on a neonatal unit, but the clinicians we work with through the milk bank, um, describe it to the parents that they work with that it's like a medicine it's you know as important as any of the of the other life-saving medications that their baby is is taking and the big drive in neonatology is you know survival rates are increasing um but it's the quality of life for that baby um you know in the shortest medium and long term and i think all the studies are pointing to the impact of having maternal milk um, during those earliest earliest days and months. Mm. When I was substantially younger, I remember having a discussion with a neonatologist who at the time mm. was the a director of our neonatal intensive care unit, which mm. was a, a big unit. And this might have been the early 80s, mid 80s or so. And when I said to him about the importance of human milk, uh, he just totally discounted that as if, you know, it was just Marie on one of her rants again. But <laughs> <laughs> now I think that the tide has turned substantially where there are neonatal intensive care units who don't have formula at all, at, at least here in the U.S. Is that the case in the in the U.K. as well? Um, no, no, I don't okay. think we've got any any units that don't use formula at all. Okay. Um, but that's interesting to know because there's certainly a change over the last couple of years. And I think part of it's been driven by the science. Um, Part of it's been driven by the fact that 
there's more donor milk available so it doesn't need oh, to be right. rationed as tightly as it has been yes. um, and that's certainly what we want to keep driving forward but also there's this recognition that um, donor milk is not just important for the baby but it's important for acting as a bridge so that the mother is able to establish her own lactation um, and there's some very good but very small studies that show that if a woman knows that her baby's receiving formula, she is un- less likely to um, to keep expressing. She's more likely to see it uh, that her body's failed. Uh, and yet the wording around donor milk is that, look, this is this is so important that we have your milk that we're willing to get in st- supplies of donated breast milk from women who've been screened, from yes, milk sir. that's been pasteurized and checked and checked again. And that it's that critically important that this is what we're going to feed your baby. And what we're really looking to do is to look at this in all different aspects of neonatology in extremely prem babies. The data is quite clear already. Um, but that's where donor milk's traditionally been used for the last 30 years. If we could get the studies going looking at late preterm or on the postnatal ward or, you know, wherever it might be useful, then it might be that this is one of the missing missing um, links to enhancing breastfeeding rates. And by the way, for our listeners, as we're hearing the words that Dr. Schenker is saying, she is saying all of the words that I understand and that I use, but... When she says donor milk, she is talking about milk that has been, as she said, screened for uh, pasteurized, that is processed. And that is different than the way that some people here in the U.S. use the word donor. Uh, I I use the term community milk or shared milk when I'm talking about milk that has not been pasteurized or not been processed. And in any case, I just want you to know that those are actually two different things. So don't necessarily equate those in your head as you're listening to Dr. Schenker. But, you know, this does bring me to a different point, which I have difficulty uh, explaining to people, and maybe you can help me here. Uh, A lot of people ask me about the idea of saliva, that is, the baby's mouth on the mother's nipple, and how his saliva impacts the mother's milk. Number one, is that true? And number two, if it is true, how can you explain that (laughs) difference? Okay, so this came about from some ultrasound studies that were done in... um, the University of Western Australia, Australia. and they showed fairly clearly that there was um, a suction effect, so a vacuum created between the baby's mouth sealing around the mother's uh, areola, and that when milk was sucked, then at the end of the suck cycle, there appeared to be a a dilation of the ducts uh, in the mother's breast. And what that was thought to be is that saliva was being sucked back into the into the nipple area Mm. and that's actually that's a really interesting uh, (laughs) suggestion that there could be this two-way communication and that the oral microbiome um, would be sucked back and then sampled by the mother's breast and there could be more things going on there could be antibodies that the baby's producing or starting to produce there could be microRNA so tiny little genetic signaling molecules um, that are telling that breast tissue locally what to do. I mean, it's all 
a little bit speculative and sure. uh, going to be Still. difficult to, to tease out. But, whoa, it makes you think a little bit differently about the process. <laughs> well, yes, because we always think of the milk as going in just one direction, or or sh- should I say being affected through one direction. Mm-hmm. But, in fact, it is entirely possible that this is, as you say, I love your term, a two-way communication. And yeah. so that makes it yeah. a little bit different. Sure. And I was just going to say a lactation consultant who I was working with said, Natalie, when your child comes back from daycare, kiss them all over, kiss their hands, kiss their their fingers, kiss their face, anything that they've been coming into contact Mm. with in their environment. And by tomorrow morning, you will have made the antibodies. (laughs) (laughs) That is so sweet. That is so sweet. Hey, everybody, don't go away, because when we come back, uh, Dr. Schenker has already mentioned the microbiome, and that's something we hear a lot about lately. So don't go away. I'm going to ask her to, to tell us more about that when we come back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Was your breastfeeding experience stressful or challenging? Did you face an unusual obstacle and go on to meet your goals? If so, we'd like to hear from you, and so would other mothers. Email radio at borntobebreastfed.com to see if you can be Marie's next guest. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Do you need breastfeeding training for your hospital staff? Maybe you need to offer all 15 sessions to meet the baby-friendly requirements. Or perhaps you need just a few sessions. Check out Marie's new course, Best Practices for Breastfeeding Management. It's perfect for improving your exclusive breastfeeding rates and helping staff earn contact hours. You know Marie will focus on the clinical outcomes, not just the training process. Marie's course offers the ultimate in flexibility and convenience. It's online 24-7 so staff can study at their own pace. You can use the course for all of your staff or just your newly hired staff. And Marie offers a tracking report so you can tell who has started or finished. Best of all, staff can print out their own certificate when they finish. Don't waste another minute trying to develop your own course. Trust America's leading breastfeeding educator to provide staff training that works. Call Marie today at 703-787-9894. 703-787-9894. And ask for your bulk discount. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Voice America. 
You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Born to be Breastfed as I'm talking with Dr. Natalie Schenker about the composition of human milk. Now, you just talked a little bit about the uh, saliva, and I want to mention for those mothers who are pumping, two things. First of all, remember that this two-way communication is not well established, but is absolutely possible. And the other thing is, remember that even if your baby does not have the saliva on your areola, He's still getting your milk, and that is just hugely, hugely important. And for many premature babies, uh, honestly, pumping is the way to go, or should I say expressing. But I do want you to talk more about, if you would please, Dr. Schenker, about the composition of human milk changing. Hmm. And I, I know that formula companies have now made milk that is you know, a little different from this one to that one, but it still does not change from week to week, from day to day, from hour to hour, probably by from minute to minute. Uh, talk to us a little bit about how the human milk in the mother's, uh, the, the mother's milk changes on a regular basis. Can you talk to us yeah. about that? Oh, this is one of the, the great... Um Oh, areas that is so amazing about lactation yeah, and yeah, this is so yeah. frustrating from the point of view of a research scientist because you don't really know what you're going to get in the sample. Right. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when I was doing my PhD and coming up with hundreds of little um, 30 mil samples in pots, when I would pull them out the bag, you could pretty much che- find which um, donor they came from by the colour and by the amount of fat in them and that there certainly seems to be some similarities within mother's milk samples that show the difference between her, presumably from her diet, um, or genetic factors, which make the milk look unique to that mother. And what science is showing is that actually on a molecular level, human milk is entirely tailored for Mm. that baby by the mother. And that's so fascinating, but also so interesting from a milk banking point of view, because are we sending out donor milk at the moment as a generic off the shelf product, which is, you know, not really selected for in any way? Could we be tailoring treatment of very sick babies with very individual needs with individual batches of donor milk? So we're kind of jumping on a bit there to the future, but it's that variability in milk that, um, that is so fascinating to study. Yes, yes. And is it fair to say that, in fact, the milk differs from mother to mother, but it varies from, even within the, the mother? Uh, for example, uh, mm-hmm. that uh, she has more fat in the evening than in, in the morning. Uh, oh, sure. Morning. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's something that we're going to be looking at over the next couple of years, because we know that some some components of human milk stay relatively constant throughout the course of lactation, some change within the first six weeks, 
Um, but actually, we don't know that much about how milk does change between women and within women over a natural term of lactation, uh, which can be several years rather than several months. Natalie, I'm also interested in talking with you a little bit about the microbiome. Now, I know that we could do one whole show on this, but people are all very curious about, first of all, what does microbiome mean and how does human milk fit into that discussion? Why is that important? Okay, so the microbiome as a word was, I think, only invented a few years ago. It certainly wasn't something that we learned at medical school, and most no, medical, no, yeah. medical students don't seem to know it now. Agree, um, agree. But it's going to fundamentally change um, trials, how we think about our own physiology, because it's the discovery that each organ in our body has a different microbiome profile. And what the microbiome is, is all of the bacteria, the fungi, the viruses, bacteriophages, everything that makes up that microbiome. And each organ has a unique pattern, a unique type um, that has more of one set of bacteria and less of another and so on. And scientists have developed the tools recently that have allowed the genetic components of uh, the, mainly the bacteria um, to be analyzed very quickly and very cheaply. So it's really driving the speed of discovery in this area of research fundamentally. And what seems to be coming to the fore is the importance of the gut microbiome. The gut obviously has many, many more bacteria than any other organ in the body. Yes. But the importance of early nutrition on patterning that microbiome potentially for very many years after, potentially even until adulthood. Um, and what's so interesting is that human milk seems to contain the specific ingredients needed for the bacteria that we would like to have, those that form the healthy microbiome, to make them thrive over ones that may be less beneficial for the human body. And the real fascination is the links between the gut microbiome and the developing brain and central nervous system, because mm -hmm. those two organs actually develop very closely yes. uh, during yes. genesis. And that process seems to continue after birth, where there's crossover between what's going on in the gut at the layer, the interface between the middle of the gut, where the milk is, and the nervous system of the gut, which goes directly to the brain. Um, so it's going to be a real hot topic um, to look at over the next 10 years as the potential for driving illnesses such as schizophrenia, potentially autism, um, neurological diseases such as multiple sclerosis and looking at how teasing out that mechanism of is there something going on in how that microbiome is patterned from the earliest days of life um, and just just an anecdote but I was sitting in the coffee room when I was doing finishing up my PhD and someone who was becoming interested in the vaginal microbiome, who was very mm. interested in oh, yeah. uh, birth and uh, C-sections and all of that story, he'd come back from a conference where some early data had been presented showing that a single dose of formula, single feed of formula in the first week of life, seemed to change to modify the child's microbiome at uh, five years of life, and that actually they'd developed uh, a much more adult-looking microbiome in their gut uh, in half the time that a fully breastfed baby 
would have. So that makes me wonder whether there's something fundamental going on about how the gut epithelium works and interacts with the developing microbiome structure um, and how that's affected by even just minimal formula feeding. And that's important because most of the data looks at whether a child's exclusively breastfed or not and compares to exclusive formula feeding. But actually, it's much more complicated than that. And certainly both of my children had formula in the first couple of weeks of life. Most babies in the UK do, certainly probably most in the US do. So actually, when you're looking at what people would describe as exclusively breastfed, my babies won't, and most babies won't be. Agreed. So that might introduce a confounder into all the trial data that actually makes the differences much more magnified. So we'll see. Do, uh, I can just hear some of my listeners, including some of my professional listeners, who will be sitting in their chair saying, ah, Dr. Schenker, come on, really? One dose? Yeah. Is, do you really believe that? Because this was not your research. This was someone no, else's. No, no, no. Um, and that's somebody telling me over a coffee, so not even, <laughs> <laughs> not even the data in front of me. So do you really buy this? And if you do buy it, do you believe that it really results in some horrific consequences? We don't know. Um, and okay. I couldn't I couldn't say. However, when you look at actually what the physiolo- phys- physiology of that gut epithelial layer is expecting to do in the first few days after birth, it's meant to be relatively leaky. There aren't the yes. tight junctions that form between cells. Um, and that's for some more two-way communication. It's to allow molecules in breast milk to get into the infant system. So big immunoglobulin molecules, stem cells, even macrophages, huge cells coming through. But it's also to allow dendritic cells, which are part of the infant immune system, which sit just underneath the gut epithelial layer. They poke little tendrils into the lumen of the gut where the milk is to sense what's coming down in terms of what bacteria are there. And the reason they do that appears to be to to train the baby's immune system from a relatively um, simple state when they're born into a completely complex, multifaceted uh, immune response. Now, when your baby starts having the first solid foods, cucumber or whatever, the genetic process that stimulates the creation of these tight junctions kicks into place. Because you, basically, you don't want lumps of cucumber in your gut. So, <laughs> right. <laughs> so that layer tightens up and you lose that two-way communication. Now, if that happens uh, at six months, then that's probably around when it's meant to happen, uh, you know, when the baby's much more mature. But if it happens in the first week, when that baby's gut is expecting to have human milk, but it's having cow milk protein, which is a foreign food, it's not non-human, then that same genetic process will presumably happen. Now, it's going to be what we call a dose-dependent effect. We've got in young babies, newborn babies born at term, their gut's about three meters long. So there's going to be some redundancy, some ability for the gut to override having some formula. Hugely interesting. And uh, when we come back, we will be talking a little bit more with Dr. Schenker about the uh, composition of human milk. Don't go away. We'll be right back. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. What's the weirdest place I've ever done it? Probably at my niece's high school musical during intermission. I've done it on an airplane. In our minivan while his mother was driving. Hi, Mom. What's the weirdest place I've ever pumped? Probably the car dealership. In the bathroom at my sister's wedding. Finding a good place to pump can be hard. Donating breast milk is easy. No matter where you've pumped, you'd make a good donor to the Mother's Milk Bank at Austin. Learn how your milk can save lives at milkbank.org slash gooddonor. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Do you need breastfeeding training for your hospital staff? Maybe you need to offer all 15 sessions to meet the baby-friendly requirements. Or perhaps you need just a few sessions. Check out Marie's new course, Best Practices for Breastfeeding Management. It's perfect for improving your exclusive breastfeeding rates and helping staff earn contact hours. You know Marie will focus on the clinical outcomes, not just the training process. Marie's course offers the ultimate in flexibility and convenience. It's online 24-7 so staff can study at their own pace. You can use the course for all of your staff or just your newly hired staff. And Marie offers a tracking report so you can tell who has started or finished. Best of all, staff can print out their own certificate when they finish. Don't waste another minute trying to develop your own course. Trust America's leading breastfeeding educator to provide staff training that works. Call Marie today at 703-787-9894. 703-787-9894. And ask for your bulk discount. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Born to be Breastfed. To reach Marie Biancuso or her guest on today's program, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to radio at borntobebreastfed.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Marie Biancuto. I'm here today with Dr. Natalie Schenker. Now, earlier in the show, we were talking about the idea that donor milk may come from a donor human milk bank where the milk has been pasteurized, or it may come from what I would call a community source or something along those lines. Uh, So, Dr. Schenker, Talk to us a little bit about donor milk in the community, however you refer to that, uh, whatever term you use in the UK. Okay, so so in the, the UK, donor milk is um, 
generally referred to as milk that's been supplied from a human milk bank where the the donor is a mum who has surplus milk who wants it to be used to help other babies and very altruistically signs up as a milk donor, uh, has blood tests, goes through a questionnaire process um, and the milk is brought in. Um, Now that's very different to milk sharing, which we would... um, uh, Oftentimes, that's term, is, yes, that's the term I would use, but not everybody uses that. Yes. Or, or friends. But then donor milk is often used as well in America in particular, um, where donors are actually not donors as they're paid for all of the milk um, by companies that are for profit. And um, and so that's introducing another complexity into the whole field. Yes, indeed. So, under what circumstances would you encourage shared milk? Gosh, um, that's a really difficult question. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's um, so, maybe, maybe you could tell us what your hesitations would be. Sure. Um, so, same lactation consultants, I was talking about um joe what we were on long car journey and i said so joe if you'd had trouble establishing lactation which would you have gone for um formula or shared milk from an unscreened donor and it took till the end of that car journey before she actually gave me an answer so it's not just complicated (laughs) me from my kind of very risk averse medical perspective but working in a milk bank you are entirely focused towards safety because of where the milk is going to, obviously, Um, because it might be given to 23, 24-week premature babies. Um, But what we screen for, we screen donors in enormously complex ways. So we ask about medications. We ask about their personal medical history, travel history. Have they gone to Zika endemic areas? Mm, Is there anything that could potentially be introducing risk into that um, into that milk. Um, and then we screen donors. And in the UK, we screen for a range of infectious diseases, HIV, hepatitis B and C, syphilis, and HTLV, which has a 1 in 20 risk of causing um, uh, leukemia. So we've got to, we, we also then screen the milk before and after pasteurization, before to check for any contamination of that milk and afterwards to check that the process of pasteurization has worked. And the national average for unfortunately having to discard milk based on the criteria that are set is around 10 to 20% mm-hmm. of milk ending the milk bank. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. get my reports back, it's sometimes slightly hair-raising what babies who are completely healthy in the community are getting <laughs> from the donors who are donating to us, it's all sorts of enterobacteriaceae, um, you know, coliforms. So basically, um, you know, babies are around, there's full nappies. You can imagine what happens with uh, hand washing and so on um, after nappy changes. Yes, and we yes. see them in the microbiology. Plus, there's been a couple of reports, uh, mainly out of the U.S., uh, looking at the, where milk is um, sold, either on the internet or to um, for-profit companies, that the rate of um, contamination with cow milk, so if there's a financial incentive, then milk is being topped up with another species' milk. To oh, make a certain- whoa. 
I was not aware of that. Wow. Yeah. So actually quite high rates, about one in 10. Um, wow. So that was really one of the impetuses to get the Hearts Milk Bank set up and running to try and address a lack of donor milk because there is a, a risk in any sense of introducing financial incentives uh, for corrupting the whole process and bringing in ethical issues that are just not, not mm. necessary. Um, yes, yes. So my hesitation around encouraging milk sharing is yes, but know your donor because uh -huh. Uh -huh. it's a different thing sharing milk when it's your sister or, you know, next door neighbor who you've known for 30 years or whoever, or your best friend to um, going on Facebook, finding right. someone who lives miles away meeting them in a service station by the motorway and swapping yes. the from the boot of your car. Um, I, I just want to interject here that sometimes what I have heard is, well, you see this mother and she's got this healthy baby and she's healthy and you see it, it's, it's all, it all looks good. How could this be harmful? And I find myself not wanting to spook the mother, but in fact, I'm thinking, no, no, no. Her giving her own milk to her own baby is a different thing than her giving her milk to your baby when you really don't know anything about this mother's exposure, history, travel, et cetera, et cetera. And by the way, for those of you who are listening in the U.S., uh, by the way, full disclaimer here, I have never worked in a milk bank. I have worked in a lot of settings, uh, but I've not done a milk bank. But I do know that the criteria that Dr. Schenker is suggesting for the UK is not terribly different from what we've got here in the US. As a matter of fact, I would say it's almost exact, but I'm not expert enough in, uh, to, to address that exactly. But it's certainly very similar. And so as we're winding up today, Dr. Schenker, uh, what would be some things that you you would want mothers to have as take-home messages from this uh, show that we've done today as related to the composition of milk? What would be your, uh, perhaps your most uh, important take-home points? Okay, so, I mean, milk is amazing. It, it's <laughs> yes. a fascinating thing that I've ever learned about, and I'm just honored mm. to be working uh, mm. in researching it, because it's like being an explorer and finding <laughs> new things, yes. how it yes. works, and how these yes. thousands of molecules work together as well as work independently. Um, so just to feel like a superhero every time you breastfeed because mm. your body's doing something really amazing. Um, but if you can donate any surplus that you have, if you do have extra, then it is a phenomenal gift to give to a milk bank. Um, yes. because it's been the direct impact of, of what it can do, both for premature babies, but also in the community. We haven't really had a chance to touch on this, but there is such a need in the community. Mm, yes, All mothers yes. to establish their own breastfeeding, but also where breastfeeding is just impossible, where the mum has cancer or no breast tissue at all, or you know any number of reasons that you know you will know, and then won't be able to produce enough milk. Um, and I would have to get yes. Um, 
The D is very, very critical. There is no doubt about that. Uh, I would totally agree. Well, as we are wrapping up today, then, I would very much like to thank uh, Dr. Natalie Schenker for her time and for being with us and being such an interesting guest. Dr. Schenker, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, and please come and visit us in the Milk (laughs) Bank. Thank you, thank you. And meanwhile, I would like to thank all of you who are listening. Without our listeners, we don't have a show. So thank you for being there. And also, if this program has been helpful for you or if you have enjoyed previous podcasts, please, by all means, share the love. Tell your friends and your uh, other mothers where you are listening to this. Direct them to iTunes or wherever, wherever is your favorite place to download the podcast. We would be so grateful if you could spread the word. And I would also like to uh, just thank everyone who has in any way made this show possible. Certainly, um, I, I know many people help me to do that. And I would also, I would like to just uh, encourage you to be present for our next shows. And if you have questions for me or for Dr. Schenker, email us at podcast at born to be breastfed.com. And in the meanwhile, remember your baby was born to be breastfed. Have a great week. Thank you for tuning in this week to Born to be Breastfed. Please join Marie Biancuso next Monday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. This week, do its best for you and your baby. 